Neil, we are recording. Welcome to the 2017 Fab Academy. We have hundreds of participants from around the world, and we're doing a giant video conference bridging about 100 um, sites with video. So beginning the weekly cycle of the Fab Academy in this grand project, um, each week I'll introduce a new topic. You'll then go off, work on it in the lab. You'll connect regionally to review um, progress and problems. And then we'll reconnect globally. Uh, each week in the global class, the first 90 minutes is going to be a review. And so the way that'll work is there's a random page generator um, that'll pick students at random. Uh, let's see, is Daniel Zolki Valero in Barcelona? Yes, Neil, this is Xavi. We are in Barcelona. Yeah, is Daniel there? No, he's not here. Okay. Um, so um, we'll pick students at random uh, and they'll present their work for that week. And also, we'll meet them. We'll talk about who they are, what they're doing, um, and talk about the project plans. Uh, and uh, after about an hour of that, we'll just open up for anybody around the world to share um, projects, problems, insights from the last unit. Um, and these are very interactive discussions. Then we'll start on the next cycle, the, the next topic. So the first half of each class is going to be a review. Then the second half will be the new topic. And it won't make sense until you go through all of that, learning about it, practicing it, and then discussing it. Uh, then through the semester, we'll run through each of these topics for each one doing a task. So one week, I'll cover large format machining. And then the assignment is one of my favorite ones. The assignment is to, uh, oh, sorry, not that one. Um, uh, the assignment is to this one, to make something big. You'll each get a big piece of stock, and you need to make a big thing. And then each of you will develop web pages as portfolios documenting what you've done. So we'll run through all of these weekly units, and then we'll build up to, in addition to the weekly units, final projects you do that will integrate the skills. And these are spectacular. Um, if we go back to the... Um, uh, class archive from last year, and then we go to students, and then final projects, and then thumbnails. And I, ha I have this link in material you'll see. You can see what these projects look like integrating the skills, the tremendous projects made by the students. So for today's class, what's going to happen is because there's no homework from last week, um, the first um, hour or so of class is I'm going to give a lecture about digital fabrication, what this is all about. Um, we'll do a bio break. We'll do some any discussion. Then we'll do a biology break halfway through. Um, and then we'll start the first content unit. The first content unit that's going to start already this week is project management. The main task for this week is you're going to learn one of the most important skills we're covering, 
which is version control, and basic web development. And this week's assignment is going to be to use a distributed version control system to set up a repository with a website for your work for the class, two really core skills you'll be learning. So we'll do that uh, after the bio break. And then the homework for this week is going to be um, build a site in the archive and initially just describe what you'd like to do for a final project. It's not binding, but it's to get you to start thinking about it. And so to do this week's assignment, you'll need to know how to pull the repo, how to build a simple website in it, and how to push the repo onto the server. Okay? And so with that, I'm going to dive in now to, unless there's any questions or comments, and by the way, this is very interactive. Um, we go through all the trouble to use this video bridge because anybody can unmute and talk to anybody else. And so this is meant to be very interactive. It's not just broadcast. So if you have questions or comments as I speak, um, unmute and do speak up. But if there's no questions or comments, I'm going to start in on the presentation. So uh, this link is to a presentation tool I wrote because I got so... Go ahead. Great. Um, hi, this is Bas. Uh, I'm one of the guys um, uh, uh, policing, so to say, the uh, MCU system. Um, so if for some reason it says in your screen um, you are muted, um, like and it doesn't go away, um, and I assume your uh, instructor is on, um, on, on, on in, the, in the WhatsApp group. He can uh, kindly request and say sorry that he didn't mute his microphone and kindly request uh, uh, speaking abilities again. Got it. Let me explain to Bas's point. <clears throat> Bas is a former Fab Academy student from the Netherlands who's now an instructor uh, in Iceland. Um, let me explain etiquette on the bridge. Uh, this is a video conference with about a hundred sites with a few hundred people. And so when you come into a room, you wouldn't come in to a cocktail party talking over everyone. So it's very important that you mute. By default, you're muted when you join. But there's two kinds of muting. There's muting on the bridge so we can't hear you. So to talk to us, you have to learn how to unmute. And your instructor knows how to do that. Um, but the other thing is um, there's muting locally, and if you send audio to the bridge, it'll give you video focus, and so it's important you mute locally, so video focus goes to people who are speaking. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about that oversight structure after I finish the intro. Okay, so with that, I'm going to spend about an hour now giving you a tour of what is digital fabrication what are fab labs and why are we here and how did this happen and what are you going to learn and where is this going so this is a link to a presentation tool if if we go back um, uh, when you click this uh, h gives you help i is an index and videos are linked to, to later go through it Uh, so as background, you probably know who I am. I'm Neil Gershenfeld. Um, along with the Fab Academy, I direct the Center for Bits and Atoms at MIT. And it'll help to understand a bit about what CBA is to understand what Fab Labs are. So with some colleagues, I started 
CBA because they never understood the boundary between um, uh, computer science and physical science. And so uh, CBA has done things like we developed in a collaboration the first computer that could solve problems faster than classical. And we're part of a collaboration that made the first synthetic uh, organism from scratch, right, a genome. And did, I think, the first thing that was called Internet of Things on putting, working with the architects of the Internet on putting the Internet into everyday devices as the kind of research. And then um, many of you know some of the students from this. One of my students runs uh, Facebook's computing. One used to run Twitter's computing until Uber hired him. Um, these are the kinds of unusual people who also fit this boundary that to do these jobs, you can't believe in software and hardware. You have to really think about how physics transforms information at this much more fundamental level. And what's come out of this research is a recognition that there's a very precise historical parallel from digitizing communication, then computation, and now fabrication. So the Fab Academy is about digital fabrication. That sounds obvious, but it's not, because there's a simple meaning, which is a computer controls a machine. And there's a much deeper meaning, which is about actually putting codes and computing into the materials themselves. So I'm going to talk a bit now about that research, and you need to understand the research roadmap to understand how Fab Labs fit into it. So I'm showing a workshop I ran with the uh, White House a few years ago when every, just about every government agency was getting in touch to talk about 3D printers. And it was missing both a short-term opportunity in the range of digital fabrication but it was missing this deeper insight into the real meaning of digital and fabrication. And that workshop helped articulate a roadmap. And the roadmap goes from computers controlling machines to machines making machines to putting codes into materials and then programs and materials. And again, to understand what we're going to be doing, you really need to understand that sequence. So. Uh, in 1936, Claude Shannon at MIT wrote, I think, what has to be the best master's thesis ever. It's a great thing to aspire to. In his master's thesis, he really developed our modern notion of digital computing. Um, uh, um, he showed how to compute universally with digital devices. And what he went on to do at Bell Labs is prove what's called a threshold theorem. And I'm going to show this in a minute. Instead of sending my voice as a waveform, by sending it as a symbol, he showed for a linear increase in the physical resources representing the symbol, there's an exponential reduction in the error to decode the symbol. So that scaling of linear increase in the code and an exponential reduction in error, that's the meaning of digital. Digital isn't ones and zeros, it's that exponential scaling. It's what makes possible the internet and we can see each other today. 
Uh, John von Neumann applied the same thing to computing. He applied Shannon to a computer and showed you could compute reliably with an unreliable computing device um, by manipulating symbols with that same exponential scaling. And that what makes possible the computing surrounding you. So here's the outlier. At the same time that was happening, um, oh yeah, so this is, the math is easy if you, I won't take too much time now, but if you send a code and you error correct and then you error correct on the error correction and you recurse, you can do an easy calculation to see how a linear increase in the symbol makes the exponential reduction in error. This is a summary of Shannon's calculation. So at the same time that was happening, in 1952, um, so uh, I'm, Sometimes I'll be doing this from my home lab, sometimes from MIT. Um, we're, you know, right now I'm at MIT's campus, so here's MIT. Um, and in 1952, what happened here was uh, one of the first real-time computers was connected to a machine to make things for the first time. So the background was the whirlwind was a computer designed to run an air defense system. Um, this was during the Cold War. And so it was the first large computer that could respond not as a batch but instantaneously. Around that time, jet aircraft were being developed and had parts that were too hard for a machinist to make by hand by turning a crank. So what's going on in this picture is in the servo mechanism lab, an early real-time computer for the first time was connected to a machine to turn the cranks to make parts you couldn't make by hand. So that's the birth of computers controlling manufacturing. Um, that's analog. The design is digital, but there's no information in the material. And so, if you um, uh, start a 3D printer and it delaminates from the bed, you get a tangle of spaghetti. Um, you know, if you're milling and you break your end mill, you get smushed milling. It's analog. The invention of digital in fabrication is actually four billion years old. And it was done by, in molecular biology and the heart of it is the ribosome. And so the best way to explain this is think about Lego bricks and compare it to a state-of-the-art million-dollar laser center 3D printer. With the Lego brick, when a child plays with Lego, you don't need a ruler to place the Lego. The geometry comes from the parts. And what that means is a child can make something bigger than themselves. The 3D printer is limited by the size of its motion system. The constraint of snapping the bricks lets you detect and correct errors. So the tower is more accurate than the motor control of the child. On the 3D printer, errors accumulate as you build. You can join Lego bricks made out of dissimilar materials. It's very hard to 3D print very different materials. And one of the biggest ones is when you're done, the Lego bricks don't go in the trash. You take them apart and reuse them. 
3D print, you might be able to grind up and make new filament, but it's very hard to recycle. All, those are all the properties Shannon and Van Neumann taught us, and it's how you work. So in molecular biology, you're made out of amino acids. They're just like molecular Lego. There's about 20 of them. Um, then a code comes to the ribosome, and the code has all the properties of a modern code, and then the ribosome assembles them, assembles them like the child playing Lego, and the global structure comes from the local constraints, from those just, you're made out of just 20 parts, the amino acids. So if you mix chemicals, you might have a yield of a part per hundred. The ribosome makes proteins with an error of 10 to the minus four. With extra error correction, DNA gets copied with an error of 10 to the minus eight. That's the exponential in digital, and that's what makes possible the complexity of you. So in the research digitizing fabrication, computing con computers controlling machines is what's around a lot of you today. That's the modern versions of the 1952 NC mill. The next step in is using a fab lab to make a fab lab. All along, we wanted fab labs to make fab labs. And so what I'm showing here are many different machines made in fab labs with fab labs. And one of the things we're going to cover is how to do this. You'll do machine building. These are machines made with our machines. So rather than buying a fab lab, you go to a fab lab to make a fab lab. But we found there is a real problem with those. Sounds great. But the problem is um, once you make one of those machines, it can only do what the machine was designed to do. And that sounds obvious. but um, in networks, dumb phones used to be connected to smartphone switches, and so you couldn't change the phone, you had to change the phone switch. What made the internet work is what the internet does is defined by what you connect to it, not how it's constructed. And software used to be made in big programs you couldn't reuse, now it's made in objects that you can recombine. And so those are leading to making machines that make machines, not as fixed purpose, but as machines that can make many things. So one of the um, instructors who, for the unit on machine building is uh, Nadia Peek, a student who's finishing with me. And what she started doing is making reconfigurable machines where we had a visitor, a former student from NASA who wanted a hot wire cutter. And so each of these is a motion degree of freedom, physically. It's part of a network that talks to um, other nodes. And then you combine software objects. And so it's a physical object that's a communication object that's a computing object. And then you assemble all of that to make a machine. But it could add or subtract or be open or closed loop. There's nothing static in the machine. It's a reconfigurable machine. And so one of the units we'll be doing in the Fab Academy is we'll be giving you the parts to make those. We'll send that off to all of you. And then you'll each, as a group, make machines that do things. And this is a lot of fun. So this shows the steps of um, uh, Nadia cutting out the configuration for the machine. Um, building the electronics for it making the network, um, 
assembling it. And then you can reconfigure these in lots of different ways. And so this will show just a few of the examples from uh, Fab Academy cycles. Uh, this is a calligraphy machine from Seoul, a uh, Japanese drawing machine. Uh, Monterey made a scanner. Madrid made a parallel array. Um, Iceland made a coffee serve. Uh, Taipei made a marble light show. Uh, Puebla made a hot wire multi-axis cutter. Uh, painting in Israel, drawing in Glasgow. Um, uh, this is a open dot made a lathe. So those are examples of not just a machine, but a reconfigurable machine, and you'll be doing that. In support of that, when we get to that, I'll talk about things like how we develop the network for them. Um, we've written software that I'll be explaining that lets you build workflows in the browser. This is something I wrote to build workflows to run machines by composing software modules that talk to the physical modules that then does high performance computing in the browser. And so what I'm going to what I'm showing here is toolpath calculation, in this case to mill a PCB. And so traditionally CAD CAM machine control and motion control are separate stuff, steps. When one person does all of that, you want to combine them. And so this is a workflow tool to combine all of those steps. Um, we'll talk a lot. Um, this was an example we did with SolidWorks to provide a direct interface right out from SolidWorks into all of these uh, modular machines and traditional machines. Um, then we'll talk a lot about design tools. One of my students, to feed this pipeline, wrote an entirely new geometry engine that lets you do things like radiate an object into an object or interpolate between objects or make a, a shape in between two other objects. And so in the design tool week, I'll be talking about these, sort of, these new kinds of design tools that let you design geometry and how they work. Um, and what that's leading up to, this was a more recent event we did with the Obama White House where they wanted to look at how makers work with manufacturers. And the message from this that Nadia gave them that was very well received was the opposite. Rather than making makers look like manufacturers, you want to make manufacturers look like makers. Instead of fixed expensive infrastructure, you want to do rapid automation for agile production coming out of that. So all of that, though, the design is digital, but the materials are analog. So the step after that is digitizing the materials. And so by digital materials, what I mean is a discrete set of parts um, reversibly joined with a discrete set of relative positions and orientations, like amino acids or Lego bricks. And so to give you some examples of that, um, one of my students set the world record for the highest performance ultralight material. Instead of making a jumbo jet with a tool the size of the jumbo jet um, with composites, and one of our weeks will cover how to lay up composites, he showed if you make little 
carbon fiber composite loops and you link them reversibly, you can set the world record for material performance. And then in turn, once you've done that, you can um, design in deformations to the structure. And so more recently showed how you can do things like make uh, airplanes that can change shape by morphing the shape of the structure. Um, and then this is another student who's making these adorable robots to build them. You can think about these as mechanical ribosomes. They're little robots that are attached to these big structures and crawl around them. Um, so that's locomotion. And then um, uh, they can collaborate. Oh, let's see, let me go back. Um, they can collaborate to build these structures. I'll let this play longer because it'll show two of them. So that, that's locomotion. And then these are two of these robots sharing parts to collaborate on construction. And so we're working on that both on Earth and in space. Then to start shrinking, um, this is now micro to nano Lego. This is using nanofabrication tools to make nanometer scale Lego bricks. And then once you can do that, this is a machine that's like a child playing with Lego, but now instead of printing or cutting, it feeds with the micro parts. And so once you can do that, you can then do things. Yep. Yeah. Well, one question, Romain from yep. Paris. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you assemble like uh, Lego at the nano scale? How do you assemble them? It's a fabulous question. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Yep. So with these discrete parts, we're going to teach you to make circuit boards and assemble electronics. But this way, you can actually do three-dimensional assembly of electronics. I buy parts from DigiKey. They sell 500,000 types of resistors. Conceptually, you can make all of them from just the conducting and insulating and a resistive brick. And so based on that, uh, one of my students, Amanda Gasai, wrote this really interesting design tool to design the placement of bricks of electronic material. So you can design... Is Available for us? No, it's not because it's it's a research it's research. It's not stable, it's imperfect, it's incomplete. It'll eventually make its way out, but it's much too far upstream for that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we don't care if it's if it's uh buggy. Yeah, no, I uh, I'll work with her to find a version to get it out. Um so this lets you design discrete assembly. Um, and then this is a more complex version where you add actuation to design robotics.
So this is adding um, building blocks that um, can actuate. So then, um, this is a figure from Amanda's thesis where she has this nice hierarchy of just like the amino acids, with 20 or so materials, you can combine them into functional elements and build a hierarchy. And what that's leading up to is, now to answer Roman's question, ribosomes are slow. They add one amino acid a second. But you can make an elephant by adding one molecule a second because of an, ex a, an exponential. So the first exponential was error correction. The second exponential is ribosomes make ribosomes. So cells can have millions of ribosomes. And so you have millions of slow assemblers working in parallel. So what I'm showing here is initial design work. So in biology, Primary structure is the sequence of amino acids. Secondary structure is the geometrical motifs they form. Tertiary structure are the functional elements made out of those. And quaternary structure is then the molecular machines, the light sensors in your eye or the, the um, uh, chemical sensors in your nose. In the same way, we're building a hierarchy from these discrete parts to functional elements made out of them, to modules made out of them, to systems made out of them. And this is the first version of a design for an assembler that assembles assemblers out of the parts that it's assembling. So a self-reproducing machine. And the heart of the answer to Roman's question is the physics of assembly works down to nanometers. The physics is about the same. The problem is the scaling. If you place one part at a time down to this nanometer scale, it would take the age of the universe to make anything. <clears throat> the way you get the scalability is you need the exponential increase in capacity of making assemblers. So the heart of this research is making assemblers that can assemble themselves out of the parts they're assembling so you get an exponential number of assemblers. Um, so in turn, from there, now to um, start to step back and relate it to fab labs. Oh, sorry, yeah, I was just going to mention um, this is work. It, in the first TED talk I did, I had a, a, a passing line where I said computer science was the worst thing to ever happen to computers or to science. And what I mean by that is that traditional computer science ignores physics, and so for machines that make machines, we're developing ways to write computer software based on geometry. So the design of a program is not lines of code. It's actually represented as part of the construction of the machine. And interestingly, I started with John von Neumann. The last thing John von Neumann wrote about was how to represent the design of a computer that can reproduce itself self-reproducing automata. And so this is this convergence. To do this, a computing device needs to communicate to construct. That was the theoretical 
introduction of that concept. Technologically, that's what we're now ready to tackle. Um, oh, and this is an offshoot is as part of a DARPA project, um, we're doing a video game version based on Amanda's software. And in fact, actually, I should have mentioned this. The better answer than Amanda's research software is we're working with an interesting collaborative team to turn this into a video game. To, to, um, and that'll, that's aimed at being you know, easy to use for millions. And that's maybe the easiest way of all this will come out. And so hopefully later uh, in the spring, we'll have a version of that ready. So I just gave a tour through a lot of research. And now the way to think about it is uh, there were mainframe computers that cost millions of dollars and filled a building and were for a corporation. Um, then came mini computers. And this picture is really important. Um, this is a PDP. So uh, MIT's whirlwind that was used to control the milling machine turned into the first large transistorized computer, the TX series. Um, the developers of the TX series at MIT spun it off as the P DEC PDP. <clears throat> the PDP was used to create the internet. This is a picture at Bell Labs of Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie using a PDP. And what they're inventing is Unix. Um, this was the birth of modern operating systems. So video games, word processing, voice over IP, just about anything you did with a computer today was first done on a mini computer. The mini computer wasn't a computer. As you can see, it filled a room with all of these different subsystems. But it was small enough that a work group could use it. Not a whole corporation, but in this case, Thompson and Ritchie. Then came hobbyist computers. <clears throat> they were personal, but they weren't useful. The Altair, initially, all you could do is flip switches to load a program and watch the lights blink. But that's how Apple got started. That's how Microsoft got started at that stage. And then finally, all of it came together into the PC. So the 1952 NC mill is like the mainframe. Then we'll talk about Fab Lab. The machines that make machines today are like um, the um, uh, um, uh, hobbyist computers. They're not yet easy to use and universal, um, but they're individual. And then the research I just spent the last half hour describing is the roadmap to the Star Trek replicator. Star Trek had this thing that could make whatever the plot needed. And the point is the replicator isn't just a 3D printer. It's a real molecular assembler. And I just sketched a few decades of a research roadmap to the replicator. So now if we look at that sequence, fab labs are exactly the cost and complexity of a mini computer. Um, it's not easy to use. It doesn't fit in your pocket. It's not cheap enough for an individual. But this is exactly the same historical moment. We're just transitioning from the fab lab stage to the machines that make stage. Um, and this is the equivalent of the moment like invent the internet. So when we're done the replicator, it'll be easier, faster, and cheaper. But 
what you could make is what you can make today. So what changed from the PDP to the iPhone is not what a computer can do. It's faster, better, cheaper, easier to use. And so think of the Fab Lab as a machine. It's 10 machines now, but if you take the room you're in, data goes in and things come out, or things come in and data goes out. The research is going to keep merging it all together, but you don't need to wait for the invention of the equivalent of the iPhone or the replicator to do it. So that's the important stage. The technology you're using is going to keep changing, but what you can do with it, you can already do today. And so to understand Fab Labs, in my research lab at MIT, we had all of these machines and I had to teach people how to use them. And so I started a class called How to Make Almost Anything. And that was aimed at just a few research students, but hundreds showed up you know, just wanting to make stuff. And so um, Kelly was a sculptor and she made a device to save up screens when you're mad and play them back later. And this was a web browser for parrots. And this was an alarm clock you wrestle with and convince it you're awake. And this was a dress that defends your personal space. And those projects happened year after year so consistently that I finally realized the students were answering a question I didn't ask. I was asking what is digital fabrication, how to do it, the research. I wasn't asking why to do it. And what they were showing was that the killer app for digital fabrication is personal fabrication. So this is Ken Olson, who led the development of the TX at MIT, then spun off digital that created the computing for the internet. Um, digital's bankrupt. Not only that, all of the other companies it spawned, Wang, Prime, DEC, Data General, the whole mini computer industry failed when PCs came. And Ken Olson famously said, there's no reason to have a computer at home. Little bit of history to that, but that's what he said. So the mini computer industry looked at personal computers, thought it was a toy, and it killed them. In the same sense that digital fabrication lets you do personal fabrication, which is fabrication for individuals, not corporations. And so that is that thought is then what led to the Fab Lab. So my research lab has million dollar machines. It has a workshop that has $100,000 machines. Then within that, for things like the how to make class, we use $10,000 machines that you can use to make $1,000 machines. These levels nest. They don't replace each other, but they nest. And so um, this is a video Bob Dylan's son, Jesse Dylan, made about Fab Lab. I'll, I'll skip it, but you can watch it uh, in the presentation. Uh, the National Science Foundation approached me about doing outreach on digital fabrication to tell people about it. And um, so what we put together was a mini version of the research lab that's a snapshot of the technology. And so this is the Fab Lab Frosty Runs in Vestmanair, Iceland. It, today it's about a $100,000 investment and about two tons. So computer design tools, 3D printing, 3D scanning. 
you might think this is all about 3D printing. You'll discover it's one of the tools you use, but it's only one of them. There's small-scale precision cutting that lets you make things like circuit boards and molds for tooling to cast parts, cutting with a knife to make printing masks, flexible structures, um, flex circuits, antennas, things like that, cutting with a laser to make um, cut out 2D parts to make 3D structures, large format cutting either directly for things like furniture or to make tooling to lay up composites, and then electronics to do surface mount rework and then program embedded processors. And so all of that together lets you make functional systems. Each of these tools alone lets you make a, a particular thing. But the magic comes when you combine them. And so once you put all those tools together, um, going around, like those are custom skateboards in Barcelona, um, a kayak one of the students in what the class made, a bicycle, the whole solar house Barcelona's lab made, um, high-gain antennas in Afghanistan, single-board computers for network access, healthcare electronics, um, a robotic chess set, including making the parts and the controls, a boom box, uh, tooling to make sailing cleats. Each of these are made using not just one, but the combination of tools in the Fab Lab. And you'll learn all of the skills to do everything on this screen. And so the surprise was we opened a few of these for the National Science Foundation, and then they started doubling. Um, we did one in inner city Boston. There was a strong Ghanaian connection to the Ghanaian community that led to one in Sekundi Takaradi that then had a South African connection that led to one in Pretoria and then from there to Sochengovi and then uh, Ling Seidit in Norway. And so today there's about a thousand um, and the doubling time has been about a year and a half. And so nobody planned that and nobody's trying to tell anybody they should have fab labs, but it's just like the growth of the internet. Every time one opens, somebody else wants one. And so they've grown into this global network. There was no plan to do that. So early on, the idea of a maker movement was emerging as this was starting. This was some of the very early stages in, in the emergence of a maker, the idea of a maker movement. Um, fab labs are very much part of a bigger maker movement, but really functions as this coordinated network. And so all the labs you're in, share the same core set of evolving hardware and software. And crucially, it's not fixed, but the labs keep changing um, as the technology changes. But the fact that you have the same set of common capabilities lets people and project be mobile in the network. So we can do the Fab Academy because it's a network that's all sharing common capabilities. So uh, this is a lab Blair manages in Detroit um, working with a number of communities uh, in Detroit, and also he does work from there in Africa, just showing what some of these labs look like. Um, this is one we did with the Cook Inlet Tribal Council in Alaska, where there's great native crafts as well as a lot of um, uh, development problems. This is mixing uh, traditional uh, native uh, crafts in Alaska with modern rapid prototyping tools. Um, this is one 
labs in Belfast and Derry, right at what are called the peace walls that were separating the Protestant and Catholic communities. These are labs that let kids from both sides of the peace walls come together and work. Um, Ohad uh, runs a lovely lab in Holan with a very mixed community in Israel that comes together and can collaborate in the lab. Um, and so to understand the Fab Academy, we then had a problem. So on the left is Hans Christian, who was at the lab in Lingsidet, which is a few hours from Tromso. It's about as far north as you can go in Norway. It, it's so far north that satellite dishes look down, not up, because that's the way to the satellites. And he was considered kind of a problem in the local school because he had learned everything they could teach them. So I showed, so he was just hanging out in the lab. I showed him a few lessons, and then the next time I saw him, he showed me a robot truck. He had designed the body, the windshield was a display, he made the electronics for it, the motor control. Um, on the right is Chapiso, um, in an, what was an apartheid era township, Soshengovi, and unbeknownst to me, she was doing the work of my MIT classes from that fab lab. And so Hans Christian or Chapiso would, would fall off a cliff. They were so ahead of local opportunity. The message was, you're smart, you have to leave now. But they had the lab. And so that's what led to the Fab Academy. Um, the real inspiration for this can go back even further. When MIT made the PDP, this is Seymour Papert. He studied with Piaget, um, uh, who's like the guru of how kids learn. And the basis of what they study really is the idea of constructionism, that kids learn as scientists. They do experiments. And Seymour wanted to extend that to computers, so he wanted to take computers and let kids play with them. But at the time, these were million-dollar room-filling machines. So it seemed like a crazy idea, but he could get access to an early one at MIT. And so he made the turtle, which was a robot kids could program. And so that was the first connection between computers and kids with a one-off million-dollar computer at MIT. Um, Alan Kay studied with Seymour and then went off to Xerox and went on to create Windows and Mice and Laptop and Modern Computing Paradigms. Originally not for business people, but for kids. Um, Mitch Resnick studied with Seymour and created Scratch and Lego Logo and Mindstorms and this whole legacy. And towards the end of his life, I was surprised as Fab Lab spread, Seymour said something really interesting. Um, he made a gesture. He said it was a thorn in his side that the kids could control the, the turtle to move, but they couldn't make the turtle. The goal was for the kids to create the turtle, not just move the turtle. And so he saw Fab Labs as exactly lining up with this roadmap of expanding the means of kids learning by discovering and experimenting the universe, not just using computers, but creating computers. And so you know, I, I thought it was an accident. In retrospect, he, he saw it as being exactly aligned with this plan. And so the Fab Academy emerged to teach the how to make class that I was doing at MIT, but now on this global scale. 
And the way it works is you're in work groups with peers, with local mentors, surrounded by machines locally, and then we connect you globally with video and content sharing. And so you're going to do weekly assignments and final projects. You'll make a video to document what you do. So this is a nice example from last year. This is Guillaume from a green fab lab in Valdora outside Barcelona aiming at sustainably produce, producing with local materials. So here's Guillaume's video. Um, he wanted to make food, so do aquaponics. And so here's his skills the first week. He could just make a sketch. Then he's learning design tools, so here's some models. Then laser cutting, he's making a small prototype. Large format machining, he's making a bigger prototype. Then he's making the parts, the lights, the plumbing. Then around here, he's learning electronics. Um, he's designing, at this point, circuit boards. He's learning how to assemble the circuit boards. These are the controls. And I love this picture. Around week 16, he's eating the first lettuce from the aquaponic system. And so this is a great example of a final project. The idea of the project is to integrate the range of skills we cover. And so this is a really good example. Um, not only that, each week you can do the assignments in isolation, or you can coordinate to use all of your weekly assignments to build up to the final project. And this was a good example of right from the beginning he knew what he wanted to do, so each week built up to the final project. Some of you won't. You won't know what you want to do until the very end. That's fine. In his case, he could do that um, straight through. So uh, in turn, the Fab Academy teaches digital fabrication, but more than that, it's this network, the infrastructure. And so it inspired this class, which is how to grow almost anything, which is use a fab lab roughly to make a bio lab and then teach biotechnology. And so we're teaching that in the fall. Um, and then there's another class coming um, taught by Olafur Eliasson, who's one of the greatest living artists, on not how to make almost anything, but on why to make almost anything, how to think about the implications and impacts of making. And there's another class coming on machine building. There's another class coming that's being called the Soft Academy on sewing fabrics, flexible structures. And we'll talk more about those um, in recitation to the schedule. Neil, do we have a schedule for, for them? No, we don't have the. So right now on the recitations, I'm pinning down each of these people. And so we'll, we'll be firming up both when each of these are offered and the previews in the recitations. That, that's going to be coming out over the coming weeks. And so the name was initially a joke, but the name that stuck is the Academy of Almost Anything, or for short, Academeni, which is the collection of these academies building on the infrastructure of the Fab Academy. So, uh, and then you can do this video locally where Oliver explains it. And so, 
a way to think about all of this uh, is um, in computing terms, again, you know, I, I showed you MIT out the window. Um, MIT is like a mainframe. You come here and get processed. It's, it's effective for what it does, but it can fit a few thousand people. Online classes are like the bitnet era in computing when terminals were connected to mainframes. And so in a MOOC, the student, the class is central and then the students are connected to it. What we're doing today is like the internet. Um, this is an educational network. It's coordinated, it's managed, but there isn't a central site you're remotely connecting to. It's a network of local sites connected globally. It's not a distance, but a distributed educational model behind the Fab Academy. So then in turn to understand some of the larger implications, um, uh, each year all the labs meet. Um, in 2014, we all came to Barcelona. Um, Barcelona has fabulous design sense, but it's had 50% youth unemployment. So it, it's hard for a whole generation to get traditional jobs. Each of these flags is a planned fab lab in Barcelona. And what happened is um, the lab was started uh, by Vicente Gallart, who then became the city architect, and then this is um, uh, Mayor Trias, the previous mayor. And at that meeting, he start pushing a button to start a 40-year countdown to urban self-sufficiency. The idea is instead of products coming into Barcelona and trash going out, they want the bits to come and go, but the atoms to stay. So deploying digital fabrication for urban infrastructure, so if you live in the city, you can produce what you consume. And that thought, in turn, has inspired a number of other cities. So Tomas Diaz runs a Fab City project, and there's a growing list of cities around the world joining this towards the goal of cities that are globally connected for knowledge, but self-sufficiently locally, using digital fabrication to produce all the things they consume. This isn't going to be a step, it's a continuous ramp, bit by bit, replacing what cities buy now with sustainable local production. And you can think about this as sort of a super network over the Fab Lab network, building sustainable cities. Um, then this whole network came to MIT, um, then the year, um, most recently, we all went off to China for Fab 12. Um, and I'm being hosted here by the leadership of Shenzhen, which is the, the heart of mass manufacturing. And so you can go there, and that's where they make things like Samsungs, but they also make Samsangs, and all of the sort of what are called Shanzai, where they re-engineer products. So last time I was there, I bought for my son an Apple Watch, that cost $25 and had a SIM card because it was a telephone. They had the SIM card slot that Apple forgot to put in. So this really creative manufacturing ecosystem. 
and they're partnering with the Fab Lab network because if Barcelona is going to produce what it consumes, you don't need Shenzhen to make the products, but we still need mass manufacturing to build the building blocks that let you do local manufacturing, things like the um, precision motors and bearings or the Wi-Fi radio chip, stuff like that does need more substantial investment. And so there's this really interesting pivot from mass manufacturing to mass manufacturers pivoting to create the technology for personal manufacturing. Um, we ran uh, a lab at the White House, again in the Obama administration. This is right outside the Oval Office. And the foreground to this was celebrating the maker movement, celebrating making. But the background to what's going on in this picture is when PCs came, it killed the mini computer industry. And so the new jobs weren't with mini computers. They were driven by what personal computers created. And in the same sense, there's a lot of discussion about work and jobs. But what's emerging is with digital fabrication, the new jobs don't come back to the old factories. It's really creating new ways to work where consumers can become creators um, rather than per so rather than trying to get a job to then get money to get something, you can just make the thing directly. And you might do it for yourself. Somebody you know might do it for you. You might do it on the scale of your street, on your town, on your city. All of these scales that weren't viable before for new ways to buy and sell and manufacture. And um, an interesting part of that is uh, many of the business models emerging around Fab Labs don't even sell the things you make, they sell the benefits of making them. In the same way that Google gives away search, but they sell the benefits of search through advertising, many Fab Labs now are funded not by making products, but for the impact of what they make, like the infrastructure in Barcelona, or um, the impact on the communities, say, in you know, the, the labs in Northern Ireland. Um, this is a video of a bill of a physicist in Congress who wrote legislation in the U.S. to make a national lab out of connected local labs, very much based on the model of um, Barcelona, viewing the means to make as part of national infrastructure. And then in turn, that's led to a growing set of collaborations. Uh, there's a lovely fab lab that started in Lima with uh, Victor and Benno that's helped lead to a Latin American network. Um, uh, Benno grew up in the Amazon where the way he describes it is you had three choices. You could be a farmer, a soldier, or a terrorist. And he, he chose none of the above. He started a fab lab in Lima and he has a great project now to develop a floating fab lab to bring rapid prototyping tools up the Amazon for sustainable development with indigenous communities. And so when the sustainable development goals were launched at the United Nations, we ran a lab there because if you look at the goals of the UN, things like access to clean water and food and energy, all of those really rest on digital fabrication, the ability to turn data into things. And so 
with the White House, we ran a lab to show the way you meet the sustainable development goals is not to mass produce and ship solutions, but provide the tools locally. And then more recently, we've partnered with the International Committee of the Red Cross and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, the people on the front lines of humanitarian relief to create a global humanitarian lab. And so this is being done as an overlay where you can use the whole Fab Lab network to do rapid response to humanitarian disaster for things like prosthetics or shelters. Um, and so increasingly, what matters is not that you have a Fab Lab or how many Fab Labs, but the kind of programs emerging like these building on top of that, really using the network for the power of a network. And Finally, what all this leads up to is, uh, this is an event I did with um, uh, 20th Century Fox uh, um, on their studio for the bonus material for the movie The Martian on the real science of going to Mars. And from my intro, you should recognize the images in the background. What I'm covering, uh, and again, the video is in the, the movie The Martian, the bonus material, is to go to Mars and build a civilization, you don't need 500,000 resistor types. You just need the three parts that let you make any resistor. And so you, you need to build up these 20 parts and then build all of technology from it. And so ultimately what we're really asking is what are the minimum building blocks you need to create a sustainable, self-sufficient civilization? And the work we're doing for space colonization is the, the furthest out frontier of that. So here's a few things I wrote that have background. And with that, let me pause for questions or comments before we then come back to talk about the class. So questions or comments? Now, if you're new to the bridge, you have to unmute locally, and then you have to do star six to unmute on the bridge. Give it a minute more. No questions or comments? Well, one question, uh, Neil, um, yep. from, uh, from Bas in, in Reykjavik. Um, uh, last year, there was a recitation about, um, uh, uh, um, what was it again? About um, uh, also growing your own food. Um, it was about the personal food computer. Yes. It will be interesting to uh, uh, see if there's an, uh, an, an, an update on that. Um, yeah, well, let's see. The, the, there's a very interesting update on that. Um, that was the Open Ag Project at MIT, and, and they're making good progress. Um, you know, uh, there's a very, very close parallel between machines that make machines and machines that make food, where the making of food isn't weird biotech. It's just if you take a plant and you precisely give it light, moisture and nutrients, you can dramatically improve productivity over traditional agriculture. Um, so that, that's the um, Open Ag Project at MIT. Um, but the, here, um, there's another thing that grew out from it. 
let me wait for this to refresh. Um, right now I'm sending my desktop both to the web and to the video bridge, which means sometimes I have to fight to get its attention. Uh, in about a week or so we're going to switch, so I only send it to the web. That will make it more responsive. Um, The, um, what I want to show you is another interesting project that emerged. So Guillaume, who started, who did the Fab Academy project on the aquaponics, has led that into a project called Aquapioneers, somewhat like Fab Cities, but now to do um, machines that make food as a network-wide project. Is anybody in Barcelona or uh, Valdura who wants to talk about that? No? Uh, Nils? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think John should be in Green Fab Lab uh, and maybe you could explain a little bit more about the John, so, are you there? Okay, if not, we can have them back, but, but this was taking, many of the class projects have grown into much larger projects, and this was a great example of a class project that's become a collaborative site and organization to, to build technology for food production in that way. Okay, any other questions or comments? Yeah, hi Neil. This is this is, this is Thomas from Paris. Woman. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. one of our students, Isabella, has a question for you. Yeah. Hi, hi, Isabella. Um I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the partnership with the Red Cross and what types of programs or sites are being developed for the refugee, you know, crisis and you know, sure. combating yeah. refugees. Yeah. So if you search for Global Humanitarian Lab, um, the second link is one of the principles David Ott talking about it. So when he approached me, I sent him off to spend time in Fab Labs, including uh, Jean-Michel Molinars in Grenoble and Barcelona. So this talks about it. And in turn, this was launched. And so this is a partnership of ICRC, UN. So first of all, let me explain. ICRC is the International Committee of the Red Cross. It's really interesting. There's local Red Cross branches. This is the one that goes into things like Syria or Iraq or Darfur, some of the most difficult parts of the world. And they have these really interesting protocols that let them work on both sides of the conflict to be not seen as sectarian. So that's ICRC. And then they work with UNHCR, where the UNHCR was dealing with how do refugees get educational opportunity and entertainment and infrastructure. And sort of all of those come together by providing access to digital fabrication, leading to projects to do fab labs and refugee camps. And so this is a collaboration of the CBA at MIT, the Fab Lab Network, a number of governments, um, 
a number of world programs with ICRC and UNHCR that spun the whole thing off as this new organization. It's led by two principals who are good friends of the Fab Lab Network, Olivier Delarue and David Ott. And it's just starting, and what it's doing is building up a whole network of things like demonstration labs to prototype solutions, um, coordinated programs, uh, examples of rapid deployment through the network. But it's really months old. And so what I'd say is if you're interested in this, um, send me a note. Um, if you search for me, um, the first link will go to a home page. And the home page has a public email address that will get to me. And so uh, just search for me and you'll find the public email address, gershitcba.mit.edu. Send me a note and I'll introduce these principles at GHL because they're just now ramping up. We had this very interesting meeting where they were trying to figure out how they make a global network of labs and we realized we've already done it and so they can use this global network of labs and we're just working out how the mechanics of that will work. So send me a note and <laughs> part of developing it. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else? Okay, if not, then let me look ahead. So um, uh, let's, uh, we're going to break in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, we, we have a 15-minute bio break. Then we're going to rejoin for a very important class where I'm going to, again, talk about project management. And the two key skills for the coming week are how to do version control with a repository and how to do basic web development. And so your homework assignment this week is you're going to build a website. Um, if, if we go back each year, um, each student builds um, websites. And so the, the um, these websites uh, are really beautiful and really personal. And so I, I, what I encourage you is to um, just browse um, uh, through past years. I don't know, I'll click randomly. Um, e each of the students build sites where they document each of the skills that they master. And so browse through past years to get a feeling for them. Next week we'll cover design tools. And so in particular, how to go from 2D to 3D design and how to make designs that are parametric, that have thing elements that propagate through the design. Um, and I'll explain that next week. The week after that is cutting tools, vinyl cutting and laser cutting, and you'll make a construction kit. The week after that is producing electronics, and you'll make a circuit board and attach the components. Then comes 3D scanning and printing, which you may think is the most exciting part of the class. You'll discover it has a role, but it's only one of the tools. Then you'll begin to learn design tools to design electronics. Then we cover large format machining, making big things. Then embedded programming, starting to write programs for little tiny computer chips. 
designing mechanisms, then designing machines, and this will be in a collaborative project where you'll make group machines. Then sensors, how to bring sensor information into the intelligence of things you make. Molding and casting, uh, this is instead of printing or cutting, how to make tooling to do short-run production. Output devices, how to control motors and displays. Composites, instead of printing or cutting, how to make tooling to lay up fiber resin to make large, light, strong structures. Networking, how to take multiple nodes and connect them to each other in the internet. Interface programming, how to make desktop programs that talk to embedded devices. Uh, applications, implications, the range of things you can make. Then uh, IP, income, ways to protect or share what you develop, um, ways to make money from it. Developing projects and then presenting projects. Um, this is a very brisk pace. Each of these skills can take years to master, but in each week you'll learn what the skill is, you'll learn just enough to do the basics, and you'll learn where to go for more. And so you can think about this as there's a three-dimensional kind of ball of string that we're going to feed through a linear pipeline, which is your senses, but in your head, it'll become a three-dimensional ball of string again. And so each week, you'll master a skill. Then you'll start integrating them. And then the reality is you'll find the class doesn't end when we're done. The class will keep kind of growing over the coming years. Now, if you keep up, you'll finish on this schedule, and we hope you will. But the way the Fab Academy works is you don't finish by the calendar, you finish by rites of passage. So you need to document mastery of each skill, and then you need to show that you can integrate the skills. And you sh if all goes well, you'll do it on exactly the schedule, but some students take much longer, and that's okay. You'll be done when you're done, when you've shown mastery of the skills. And then at the end point, you'll have this portfolio. Uh, an interesting question is accreditation. Early on, as this developed, we went to the people who accredit classes, and they love what we're doing, but they didn't know how to handle it because accreditation is geographical. You accredit a particular place. And so they suggested two things. One is that we make up a credential because they don't know how to do this. So you're going to get a diploma but the diploma has a lot of oversight. You have to document the weekly skills and then integrate them in the final skills. And it's evaluated locally, regionally, and globally to really make sure it's best practices. And so many of the people who you then hire you or invest in you or admit you aren't interested in who gave the credential. It's what do you know how to do? And that comes through these portfolios. But the second part that's been developing now is now that we're doing this, a growing number of educational institutions are recognizing this against their, their own educational system. So there's a number of traditional accreditations being given to the FAB diploma as overlays. We maintain the global standard, but then they accredit it locally. And we'll be sharing more about how, how that accreditation works.
Um, so that's the schedule of what we're going to do. Um, you're going to learn lots of skills, and there's a tremendous effort that goes into supporting each student. There's a global supply chain, there's the local instructors, there's the regional teams. Um, there's a lot of oversight to help track people having problems and make sure everybody's really meeting global standards. In return for that, there's a lot of things we expect of you. Um, uh, there's mailing lists, repositories, shared content. It's very important to make good use of that. Don't ask easy questions because you didn't read documentation. Ask for help when you need it. Um, the labs can get very messy. It's very important you help clean up after yourself and help with them, you know, leave the lab in better condition. And, um, what ends up happening is the Fab Academy trains gurus who then become a tremendous resource to the network. There's a virtuous circle we didn't expect, which is each week, or sorry, each cycle of the Fab Academy, it's not static. There's a refresh of we teach best practices and new content. You all get to know each other very well as a community, and then you become a team of experts in all of these skills that's then in a lot of demand. So many of the instructors now, like I see just looking at the screen in front of me, Bas um, in Iceland or Fiori um, or Tomas, each of them was a student in the Fab Academy and then those skills were in demand and then they become instructors to help support and spread this. And so we'll um, give you a lot and we'll expect a lot from you and in return you'll get a lot from this. So with that, um, again, this assignment is the first part. I'll say more about this um, at the end of the second part of today's lecture. Um, I want you to start planning a final project whose goal is to integrate the range of skills we're covering to ground what we're doing. And in the weekly reviews, we'll start reviewing people's plans for their projects as they develop through the uh, semester. I should also mention, if you go to the class page, um, there's a search engine at the bottom. And so if you want to learn about, like, say, who in the fab class has made drones, um, this was a, a student, Danielle Gracia, last year, who for his final project made a drone. Um, that was very successful. Um, he has a busy site that takes a while to load. Um, let me see if I can find... Um, uh, he has some very impressive tests where he, he not only made a drone, but he did the guidance system so that the drone could take off and fly with a cup of water on it. And so this was an ambitious but very successful final project. And in fact, Danielle um, ended up being the um, instructor now for a new fab lab in Camp Linfort in Germany. You know, if you want to see who's done things with food, you can use this to browse. Let's see, this was a student who did rapid prototyping. When I teach molding and casting, um, you can get food safe materials. And so this is making molds to make custom chocolate candies. Um, so you can use the search engine to browse to help get ideas for that. So that's what 
digital fabrication is, that's the schedule, and that's what we're going to be doing. So before we break, are there any questions or comments? Okay, uh, if there aren't any, let's take our bio break. Um, and so um, around, yes, go ahead. There's one um, uh, thing I would like to say, and that is I'd like to congratulate everybody on uh, um, uh, proper MCU etiquette. Um, seems that we have to do less and less policing every time. So um, yeah, keep up the good work. Good. Um, we do have we have a couple um, sort of bouncers managing the MCU in the background who are um, yeah I'm checking the statistics now um, who, who are dealing with people who cause trouble but um, let's see we are we are um, 75 on MCU and 35 on MCUC yeah so this is uh, you know a um, video conference without over a hundred not people over a hundred sites and again just repeating. We go to all this trouble so that everybody can see and hear everybody symmetrically so it's not just broadcast. Um, uh, in the second part of the class, I'll actually explain what's going on under the hood um, uh, with the MCU. Good. If there's no more questions or comments, we're going to take a biology break now. And then at, uh, it's uh, at quarter of 11 Boston time, in about 20 minutes, uh, we'll restart for the project management lecture and start beginning the regular cycles. And then every class after this, um, the this one was unusual for me talking so much. Um, from here on out, the first half of every class is going to be you talking. I'll be picking random students, uh, uh, random student pages, not random students. And you'll both talk through the particular things you did, but we'll also use that to meet each other. We'll, we'll slow down and spend time getting to know people all around the world, what they're working on, what they're interested in, what their background is. And so the first half of each class from now on is going to be much more of you talking rather than me talking. Good. We're underway, 50, uh, slightly more, 20-minute bio break, and at quarter of, we'll restart with project management.